Yeah. No, we're not eating toffees now. Go and put them back. No, we'll have them tomorrow. Hungry is isn't toffees at this time of night. Go. I don't know. You can have some. You can have some bagels or some toast. So you can have them in a minute. Just go on. It's twenty-five to ten, mate. Please do so. Just don't put them back, please. You're not having toffees. You're not a big boy of toffees this time. Right, also, something out in a minute. Just give it to me. Let me do this interview. We're only going to be 15 minutes and then I'm gone. Well, what are you looking for, mate? Come on. You want to feed yourself now? You're seven years old. You haven't stopped all day, mate. You haven't stopped all day, seriously. Mate, they're star-based. You can't eat star-based, maybe, before bed. And welcome to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. I cannot believe I'm on episode 72. Like, where does the time go? I guess this lockdown's got me super active and super creative. So I hope you guys appreciate the work rate. You know, I get the messages all the time and people say, I'm trying to keep up, I'm trying to keep up. But the important thing is, you should always have at least one in the chamber, as they like to say. So, you know, I want to just keep doing the best I can to keep them out there. What I don't want to do is I don't want to, oversaturate and then that means that guys have got four or five podcasts to catch up with because what I've learned over the time is no one ever goes back to them so I think we're spacing them out with the right frequency so you guys can get the little bite-sized you know bits of insight and I think that's probably the right approach I know people say you know I could listen to these all day but I swear to god you get bored of me soon enough so today might just be a bit of a round the houses, just pick up on a few themes that maybe I haven't touched on or have sort of come to me through the DMs and so forth and I can just touch them here and you know these are questions and things that people have been asking me so why not. The first thing I want to start with is one that might be a bit for the hardcores but I think everyone needs to pay attention to this because it's really really important because while it may affect the hardcores today I don't want to say hardcore, scratch that. While it may affect people who are close to what's going on in boxing today, as boxing fans, it's going to affect you pretty soon. So this is a topic I think everyone should pay attention. When it, whenever it comes up, you should really zero in and start to pay attention. And the question is really around why the current crop of amateurs aren't as good as what has come before. Why don't we feel the same way about amateur boxing now why don't we feel the same way about the top 10 amateurs that maybe we did a few years ago so if you know me well you'll know that I hang my reputation on the class of 2008 being the best year for amateur boxing in terms of the talent that was around in terms of what was achieved and in terms of who was winning things and what they went on to do I don't think you can beat 2008 just for that concentration of skill and concentration of talent we've never had it since so the question is why were we unable to build on that I think it's something that most fans don't understand but it becomes real when you start to reel through some of the names of the guys who were there or thereabouts in 2008 
once you start to look at these names, it's absolutely insane what you had in 2008. So let's start in order of hierarchy. So 2008 was an Olympic year. So who was in the squad? James DeGale, Olympic gold medalist. David Price, Olympic bronze medalist in the super heavyweight category. Tony Jeffries, I think he was a bronze medalist as well. And I want to say he did that at probably light heavy at a guess. So we had three medalists, but we had a squad that included Frankie Gavin, Billy Joe Saunders, Joe Murray. I think Cal Yafai was in there as well. And Bradley Saunders, who no one really talks about. But he was super talented as well. And he carried on being an amateur well into like 2011, 2012, because he was really young in 2008. And you also had John Murray's brother, Joe Murray. Um, If I've missed anyone else of that squad, feel free to pull me up. But they're all names people are familiar with who are listening to this right now. (laughs) And that's the Olympic squad. So they're the guys that were deemed the best in the country. Just let that sink in for a second. So (laughs) while those guys were away, another crop of boxers were busy winning the ABAs. And I think we all know who was among that list. So you've got Tyson Fury. You've got George Groves. You've got Luke Campbell. You've got Anthony Ogogo. You've got Warren Baster. And I know people go, who the hell is Warren Baster? But at the time, you know, big things were expected of him. Don't forget, you know, you had Liam Smith. I don't know if Stephen Smith won an ABA title at the same time as well. But Liam Smith was definitely ABA champion in 2008. And the curveball, Matty Askin. People forget that Matty Askin, I think he came in because of an injury, then went on to win the whole thing. So you have to give him his due as well. So (laughs) just pause. Think of the names I've just bombarded you with. This is just one year in the amateurs. This is one year at elite level in amateur boxing in Great Britain at the time. So we talk about real strength and depth. And... You know, the Olympic squad's enough for me. The ABA winners is enough for me. But then you start to go, okay, who else was in there? Stephen Simmons. And Stephen Simmons had been a big part of the international setup up until that point. But I think he became representative of the discipline issues that Terry Edwards seemingly struggled with. And if anyone doesn't believe me, right, go back to 2008. And if anyone can find the video that was uploaded to YouTube that got Billy Joe basically suspended from amateur boxing and that's why he turned pro, feel free to share it. But essentially, it was the least disciplined group of amateurs you could think of in that GB squad. But Stephen Simmons was part of the wider amateur scene. Um, Rocky Fielding, Scott Quigg, we said Matt Yaskin, Glenn Foote, I'm trying to think off the top of my head who the, who the hell else was involved in all of this. Miles Shinquin, we don't even talk about Miles Shinquin, former junior Olympian and so forth. Miles Shinquin's part of it. Thomas Stalker, Sam Maxwell, Stephen Smith. You, you get the point. There's a whole raft of names. You could probably name 40 to 45 names who went on to do really good in terms of were able to challenge for British titles, right? Let's just say that's the benchmark of you're a good amateur and you transition into having a good pro career if you made it to British level. There are a few world champions in and amongst that mix as well. And as ne- you may be one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. So to some of the old timers, 
who are listening to this, you'll understand how good that year was. And I remember being around that at the time. And you're not even talking about guys as good as, you know, Domak and Lardy. He was active at the time. Uh, Leon Williams was probably active at the time. There were a lot of really talented guys at that layer below who now would be knocking on the door of winning an ABA title. But we don't even talk about those guys. Guys like Tommy Coyle, guys like Paul Butler, we don't talk about them. From, from a female perspective, Nicola Adams, Natasha Jonas, Leslie Saki. A lot of people won't know who Leslie Saki is, but had Leslie Saki done the Olympics, I promise to God women's boxing would be different in this country. I think she would have been the kind of lady who could have carried female boxing commercially on her shoulders. I know she still coaches now and she's, you know, she's got her own situation, but she's a mum now and everything. But much love to Leslie Saki. Uh, haven't seen her in a long time. Real class actors. The lady used to box for the All-Stars Club. Absolute class actors, a human being. So got a lot of time for her. And so 2008 in all dimensions, I think, is that high watermark. So let's, let's start to unpick what was good about that time. So one, it seemed that people were matched regularly. Two, it seemed that people had an opportunity to, to go to other clubs and spar. Like the, inter, the inter-club sparring back then was a lot more active. I think people took amateur boxing a lot more seriously back then. Uh, it was, there was definitely more of a, a hunger to fight. There was a hunger to be involved. There was a hunger to be in the gym. There was a hunger to push yourself. And what I mean by that hunger to push yourself is a lot of times now, youngsters will come to a gym and they'll assume the trainer has all the answers. They'll assume that doing the silly pitter-patter pad work is the way forward. It's not. You're wasting your time doing it. Do not even try and argue the point with me. It is absolutely pointless. So you get into that position where they're looking to the trainer to have the answers. But I remember back in the days, kids were like, nah. I'm going to push you, you're going to push me. We're going to make sparring tough, no prisoners taken. And cultures were more rigidly policed back then, which I don't think you get now. I think now these guys are too scared to define themselves. They're too scared to impose themselves in their characters. That's why you don't get amateur boxers of, of that sort of type, like a Billy Joe or a James DeGale or a George Groves. You don't really get those types of characters anymore. And I don't know why we don't attract them. Maybe we don't allow them to flourish. I don't know. And maybe that's what Terry Edwards got right, where Terry Edwards just said, look, I know you guys are a bunch of, you know, ne'er-do-wells or whatever you want to call them, but you can all fight. And so I trust you to get the job done, even though it meant that in 2008, Frankie Gavin didn't make weight. And then Billy Joe kind of choked in the Olympics, came back and was suspended because people found out that he was acting in a lewd way towards, I think it was like a French tourist or something. But anyone that thinks that Billy Joe does these things for a bit of a laugh and that, you know, we should forgive him. He's been doing this since he was 17, 18. So at some point you're going to learn that it doesn't work for you. But when I really strip it down and I look at where I think things have gone wrong and why I think the trend for amateur boxing is only downward, is this. I estimate that most boxers of a decent standard, probably spar about 350 to 360 rounds a year. Actually, I'll rephrase it. 350 to 360 gloved up rounds. 
So whether that's sparring or fighting is irrelevant. In a typical season, you're trading punches for about 350 to 360 rounds a year. Now, 2008 and before, you'd have estimated about 40% of those rounds would have been competitive rounds. What I mean by that, you'd have been fighting. Maybe not that, maybe 25 to 30%, I think, if I'm, if I'm reflecting on that. So between a quarter and a third of your rounds would have been fighting. The rest would have been training, development, condition, whatever you want to use those for. Because lads, it wasn't unusual for lads to be fighting between 20 and 30 times a year. At the top level especially, like when you had the tournaments and you had representative bouts and you had all of these things, you were active. And your clubs would get you active if you're good. If you're good and you're hungry, proactive, talk to anyone of a certain age, they'll tell you. They just used to take their stuff. If they're on weight, they'd take their stuff as a spare, just in case they were needed that night. That's how hungry people were to fight. So if you ask me now, I'd say of every gloved up round an amateur has, for every 12 rounds they have, one is competitive. If they're really hungry and ambitious, of every eight rounds they have, one is competitive. So what are the other rounds? What are the other 11 rounds for the less ambitious? What are the other seven rounds for the more ambitious? Repetitive sparring with the same three or four guys. You're not learning anything new. Week after week, you don't learn anything new. Nothing replaces, this is what experience has taught me, nothing replaces the pressure of competition. Nothing will give you more of a lesson of what you're capable of than what happens when the bell goes. You can spar all you want. You can shadow all you want. Those competitive rounds are the ones that develop you. And the proportion of developmental rounds these kids have now has gone down. People are less willing to make shows. And now that people understand how the GB system works, amateur coaches are scared of defeat. So they're not going to put their guy in with someone who could beat them. So the only time you have challenging fights now is in tournaments. So actually, it's not even one in 12. Because if you do do the tournaments, it might be one, in, it might be one out of the 15. And so this is why the amateurs aren't as good. You, you end up in this really awkward position where these guys aren't doing the competitive rounds. And then they get frustrated because they know they're not doing the competitive round. So they go, well, why am I doing amateur boxing? And then they go and they turn pro before they're ready because you need a certain number of competitive rounds because you want to make your mistakes, as we say repeatedly, in the shadows. So these guys are turning pro before they've made all their mistakes and they're making their mistakes against people trying to take their heads off. And then they become disillusioned with the pro life. And a lot of people just drop out of the sport. They fade and then one day they're just gone. And so that's why you don't see the high quality fights. You, you just, there's no one who's outstanding right now. The McCormacks, yes, but they had a load of fights before GB. Burtley were active. They'd get on the road and they'd fight anyone that wanted it. They jumped in and they got in. They were old school in their approach. We don't have that now. Where's our Bradley Skeet? Where's our Billy Joe Saunders? Where's our Frankie Gavins? They're not there anymore. Because all it takes is a bit of hype on Instagram, a couple of tournament wins, and you can get a GB trial. We're not sure your fundamentals are up to scratch. We're not sure your skills are up to scratch. Because that ratio's gone. 
ideally you want 40% of your rounds in a season to be competitive. Of the other 60%, give me 30% that are inter-club sparring because those are war games as well. Look, we all miss the days of inter-club sparring where you get guys like the Linover or when I was at Double Jab, we get Palmer's over and that's how I met Craig Richards, that's how I met John Palata. Because everyone jumped in with everyone and it was competitive. It wasn't hostile, but it was definitely competitive and it was aggressive. And people learned from that. But what's happened over time is people have got scared. Oh, I don't want to reveal what my fight has been working on. But you're like, that doesn't make any sense. And this is where coaches are stupid. A lot of boxing coaches are dumb. And this is one of the reasons people don't develop. And I'll keep it brief because I know people haven't really tuned in to hear a talk about amateur boxing. But this is why people don't really grow and develop. So these coaches are very stupid and they think, yeah, we've been working on things. I don't want to reveal them in sparring. And you're like, well, to be honest, you've got one round to surprise us. In fact, not even one round. The minute we see something we're not expecting, we'll have a plan B. So what was the point in working on all of that? You, you won't know who, who, what we're bringing to the table. But coaches like to think they're smart. So all of this means that no one wants to work together like the old days. Those friendship bonds between the trainers and the matchmakers have gone. Because there's a load of personal trainers, a load of fucking white-collar lads, a load of fucking chess players, a lot of accountants that just want to get involved in boxing so they can tell their mates they're involved. And so these guys don't know anyone and they don't understand the, the rules and the tenets of amateur boxing. One of them is clubs have to go to other clubs, jump in a minibus, get over there. Everyone spars everyone, gets a bit hostile, we all shake hands, we all hug, we all build the friendship bonds, which we don't do anymore. So this is why the quality of boxer we start to see coming to this country will be terrible. And that's why Eddie Hearn is just saying, right, I'm just going to stick my lot in with these Olympians because he knows they've had the quality rounds. Now, I don't agree with GB Boxing, Sport England, whoever's funding it. I don't agree with the foreign training camps. I think they're wrong. I think they're a waste of money. If you need your... <laughs> If you need competitive rounds for GB boxers, just let them fight people here. This is the problem. Let them fight people here and tell them, listen, your place in GB is on the line if you lose to one of these guys. Make the stakes high enough and these kids will step up. That's all it needs. And so I struggle, I struggle to get optimistic about the future of amateur boxing because I don't see many special people. I legitimately think once we get past the stage of the Ben Whitakers the Pat McCormacks, the Peter McGrails, even Harris Akbar. Give Harris Akbar his due. Shout out to Harris Akbar. The cupboard's bare. We're not bothered about who comes after. So this is your last intake to get really excited about for a while until we repair the problems in the amateur scene because the standard is really, really low. The standard of coaching's low. The standard of fighters' low the level of competitive rounds is nowhere near where it needs to be. I don't know who's going to fix that because there seems no appetite within the sport to fix it. So we're looking at a slow decline of amateur boxing and I just, I don't know how you fix that. But listen, that's me well and truly off the soapbox. Make of it what you will. I miss the days when amateur boxing meant something. Some people aren't really that bothered. And I, you know, they're probably smarter than me, to be honest with you. But what I did want to talk about is 
what, what's going to happen when this lockdown's lifted? I think it's something we all talk about, we all tweet about, because it's all we've got to talk about, really, in what's been quite a dry market for boxing news. So, when you really unpick it, what we all really want to do is watch some competitive boxing again, right? That's what our instincts are telling us. You know, oh, everything will be back to normal, let's go and watch boxing. I have a feeling that things won't get back to normal for an awfully long time, just not in this country, but globally. So with all that considered, I think the key themes for me for boxing going forward are how do you ease the lockdown? Is it just a, a big bang one day we say, right guys, everyone back to normal, go to work, shops open, crack on? Or will it be phased? Will it just be kids go to school first, then we might open the shops, then we might open some restaurants, then we might open some pubs. We want to see how the country is for a bit before we have any sporting events. So will we have that phased rollback of the restrictions that then get us to a point where we can go where we want and do what we want? We still don't know the answer to that because we still don't have a handle on the coronavirus. But that's the, one of the main considerations. How do you actually do it? One of the other considerations from a business perspective, everyone's now saying we need to get our revenue back. Sky Sports, we need football back on because these slots we sold the advertisers we're having to reimburse. Everyone's having to hand money back because the football hasn't happened. So now if the football doesn't happen, or the sport doesn't happen, you know, imagine the football season gets canned, and they go, right, it's just not going to happen. Now there's even more pressure on boxing to deliver. Not just deliver, we need the pay-per-view revenue to deliver now. So we complained before that everything was driven towards pay-per-view. This is more pressure to do that. BT Sports, same boat. We can't broadcast any live sport now. Our model's creaking and we're still carrying these overheads. So from a boxing perspective, everyone's going to be chasing that revenue. But then the question becomes, how long is it going to take for a fighter to be ready? How long will it take Dan Aziz to be ready to fight? At an elite level, not just jump in a ring and fight in 10-ounce gloves. How long will it take Dan Aziz? How long will it take Andre Sterling? How long will it take Craig Richards? How long will it take Joseph Laws? How long will it take Glenn Foote? How long will it take Lewis Ritson? How long will it take Josh Warrington to get used to being in the small gloves again, like psychologically and so forth? How long will it take them to be fit enough to do the rounds? How long will it take to be an elite level fighter again? It's not going to be two weeks. I've seen how some of these guys are training. It's abysmal. A lot of boxers would have been better off sitting down through all of this for for all the half-hearted attempts at doing work, a lot of them would have just been better off sitting off and letting the body heal, just re-educating themselves about their sport. I think boxers will look back on this period as probably the biggest waste of time ever. It's the biggest missed opportunity that some of these boxers have had to build a name for themselves. And that's where you've got to give Joseph Parker credit. At least he took a gamble. Give Hearn credit. He tried a few different things. Not all of them worked, but he tried a few things. So, you know... Tip your hat off to them. A lot of boxers showed me more of what I'd seen before. Food. Skipping. Hitting some kind of bag. And then sitting watching TV. So then you end up going, I have zero interest. I don't think I'm going to buy another boxing ticket. <laughs> and I'll tell, you why, I'll tell you why I'm not going to. And I'm going to implore anyone listening to this. 
Until the end of the year, don't buy any boxing tickets and I'll explain why. For all of its faults in producing elite level fighters currently, boxing does a fantastic job of turning lives around at the amateur level. I've seen it with my own eyes. People listening to this can refer to stories in their own lives too. As such, I'd rather people said, let me put my money into people who deserve it. Let me, instead of spending 60 to 100 quid on a boxing ticket, let me donate to a boxing club so these, these young kids can carry on, the rent can get paid, and these kids can carry on. Because we looked to the pros to become stars. We looked to the pros to give us something at a time when we needed them to step up and they chose not to. So now it's our time not to step up. It's our time to take a step back and go, no, if you didn't need us in a time of crisis, if you didn't need us when we needed you, that's okay. Go and be a professional boxer with no ticket sales. We need to hold that line. And let's see who's got the courage to stick to their principles. Just don't buy any tickets. For the rest of the year, don't buy a single ticket. Don't attend a single show. Listen, for the price of a ticket, talk to A.D. Hughes. He'll make sure you don't miss a show in your life. Shouts out to A.D. But honestly, find him on Twitter and he'll make sure you don't miss a show in your life. Shouldn't have snitched on that. Oops. But I say that just simply to say I've been disappointed in how boxing has failed to give back to its fans. Except for Joseph Parker. And give Dillian credit as well. I think Dillian's put in a bit of work, so fair play to him. Cougars tried a little thing, fair play to him. Just anyone, Denzel Bentley tried it. I mean, everyone's tried their thing, but a lot of people have been lazy. I know Umar's pushing for new content ideas, so fair play to him as well. But a lot of people have been lazy. And as such, just don't buy any tickets. Yeah? I haven't seen anyone. Actually, shouts out to Dev Sani for doing the... The lockdown lowdowns. Uh, there's one he did with Archie Sharp, which was really good. So I think that's on the Queensbury Boxing Instagram page. That's a really good one. I'm looking forward to some of the other ones. Not all of them, because I think some of the people on Frank, in Frank Stable are dickheads. But Dev's doing a good job. And I hope Dev now realises being able to talk, being able to, to draw meaningful insight and make it entertaining, it ain't that easy. Respect the professionals at this. You know, not, not dev, I mean in general. People need to respect the guys that can entertain. But don't buy another ticket. Fuck them. Honestly, fuck them. Don't buy another ticket. Because all we wanted from boxers was, here's your chance just to, you know, give back. Instead, you're just giving us more of the same. Thick bastards, fuck them. I haven't got anything else to say, just fuck them. The other theme I wanted to touch on, and I think this is the most important one. Although, it's negated if you guys stick to what I just said. What's the public appetite to be in an arena cramped right up against each other? You know, hay fever's going to kick in soon. Sneezing, coughing, spluttering, sniffling, just breathing on each other. I think this whole corona thing's got us scared. Are we all going to be in arenas wearing masks? If we are, that's going to be a really strange atmosphere. So that doesn't work either. I don't think, play, I don't think having fights behind closed doors works. I just don't because, as I've said before, the atmosphere is a large part of it. It's a large part of the occasion. So then you come back to it. How soon will we be comfortable as people? Do we have to test everyone going in? Do we need to check body temperatures and so forth? I think we do. 
I think we will for a long time. And what that means is you can't have Joshua versus Pulev early. You can't have Wilder versus Fury early. You've got to test the waters with your, your lesser talents. So maybe Hearn just goes, I'm going to put a next gen out in your core because I want to see how people respond to that before I go to a big arena and commit. Frank will be the same. He'll want a your call show. Please make Lerone Richards versus Umar Sadiq. But that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about pay-per-view events. We're just going, right, we need to test the public's appetite to do things. So my worry then becomes twofold. One, if you see how little respect some people have shown the, the social distancing and the stay-at-home campaigns, you imagine your call will be packed. And it'll be packed full of people who are actually ill. And then we'll be back to square one anyway. So it's actually really important on the government to make sure that we've dealt with this corona epidemic or pandemic appropriately before releasing the hounds, so to speak. So I don't expect boxing, I don't expect mass attendance events to really start kicking off for a while after. Because not many people have that confidence that they'll be safe. So boxing's in that really, really strange position. So if we, let's, if we just scan round and we look at what, what, what does 2020 look, what does it look like for the big names? So I think the, the biggest head-to-head we can think of at the moment is probably Wilder versus Fury 3. I think after the previous result, the appetite for a third fight's kind of waned because really we're now looking towards an all-British unification. And that unification is what's, what's front and centre in all discussions regarding the heavyweights. But actually, I think this time away will probably do more good for Deontay Wilder than it will for Tyson Fury, because at least it gives him more time to, to convalesce and get over what happened. And maybe gives him time to you know, rehabilitate and a bit of self-discovery. You know, had he had to fight again in July, I don't think that would have worked. So realistically, the earliest those guys will fight is probably October now, which is fair enough. And then if you look at Joshua Pulev, how early can that happen? I think if Hearn has Joshua's best interests at heart, you'll delay it for as long as you can. You don't want it in August because everyone's going to want a holiday. You probably don't even want it in July because everyone's going to want to go away. For the first two months after this lockdown, the last thing people will want to do is, is anything related to sport. Man, I think we just want to go out and enjoy ourselves again and just be free. You know, I know a lot of people will be right swiping on Tinder again, activating old, old links and so forth. That's what's going to happen. So we're looking at September. September, we're going to get Canelo versus Golovkin 3. Fantastic. Which then means the Billy Joe fight's dead because Canelo's then going to Japan at the end of the year. We're going to get Joshua, I imagine, in October. I imagine we're going to get Wilder Fury 2 in November. Then we're going to hear the chatter for that to happen early in 2021, which won't happen because we know how this game works. But in terms of the big names, that's what's going to happen. Then we're looking for Eubank Jr. from a British perspective. All right, what's, what's Eubank Jr. going to do? I'd like to see him in with a Charlo. I, I think it's time now. I think it's time that they just put Eubank Jr. in those sorts of positions. Let him fight Charlo. Let him fight Danny Jacobs. Let him start fighting these names that I think he has a chance against. I think he's in that, he's in that place now where... He needs to be earning the, the 5 to $10 million a fight. And I think he's more than capable of building that up. So I'd like to see that happen, you know, because for all of his sins, Eubank Jr. is still one of the best at selling a fight. 
And he does it without controversy. He does it without bad language. And he does it with this really dry humor that I think we should all love deep down. And then all these maneuverings should free up Billy Joe Saunders and Callum Smith to provide another pay-per-view night for Eddie. So you've got Joshua Pulev, you've got White versus Povetkin, which I have to I imagine that will go before Joshua Pulev because you want to test the market. Or maybe you go with Jasora Usyk as the smaller of the pay-per-view events. So Jasora Usyk first, White Povetkin, maybe squeezing Callum Smith versus Billy Joe Saunders. And then you go into AJV Pulev when you know that you know, the crowd appetite's there. The guys who are going to suffer from what you can essentially call congestion and pay-per-view fatigue are probably the guys like Josh Taylor, Carl Frampton and Kel Brook. You know, the, the guys who are just that tier below the big boys. And you go, okay, so where do you slot them in? Because you've still got Joyce versus Dubois to happen. So the pay-per-view market is going to be saturated and it's only going to have to happen in half a year. So I think guys like Frampton will be struggling to, to get themselves in shows because, look, the Jamal Herring fight you'd expect would be pay-per-view in the UK. But where's the slot for that? I, I'm struggling to understand. You know, when guys like Amir Khan come back, will we get the Amir Khan versus Pacquiao fight for the tail end of the year? I hope so. But the, there are all of these options, but the reality is, we're so far off normal that we don't know what the future is going to hold for us as a society. We really don't. So we don't know if the UK lockdown is going to be released first and then America is six months down the line. All of these things have an impact because then it means do American guys just fly over here for the fights? We don't know. There are so many things up in the air that we need the government's leadership in order to fully understand what the impact is. And I think this is why guys are Hearn, Warren... And then the TV execs are stressing out because it's the uncertainty that's doing for everyone at the moment. But a point we haven't really touched on, I think this is going to be really interesting. Because some boxers aren't necessarily going to get the paydays that they thought they'd get. Are we going to see some downward pressure on purses? So instead of the days where people are telling us Joshua's he's on for 40 million per fight, are we, going to, are we now going to have more realistic discussions where we start talking about fighters may have to take what's on the table? Because one, everyone's lost at least a quarter's worth of revenue. Two, so many fights are going to happen so quickly that there probably isn't the cash flow to be paying people big purses. So I think a lot of contracts are going to have to be renegotiated downwards because there just isn't going to be the money in the second half of the year. Don't forget, people have lost their jobs. You know, boxing is very much a working class sport. It, there are a lot of builders, a lot of construction workers, a lot of manual laborers, a lot of clerical staff who've either been furloughed or laid off. So is the money going to be what it was amongst the audience? These are all interesting questions. Do ticket prices have to come down? I don't know. What I do know is if you've got half a year to do everything, there ain't enough money to go around. So who's, who's going to have to take a hit? You know, does it mean that, you know, some guys just just sit out 2020. That might be the case. There are a couple of things I wanted to touch on as well were just you know how quick we are to to ban people as overrated, and I find it weird. So we we never have a fair view on who who deserves their place in our boxing consciousness, who deserves their place in our hearts, and I say this because people 
I've been talking about obviously Prince Nassim and where does Prince Nassim rank among among the greats. Prince Nassim is like a David Hay for me. And what I mean by that is they moved boxing. Forget weight classes, forget world titles. Prince Nassim moved boxing from one point to another. Now, I mean this on a global level. If you were to look up boxers on YouTube who have the most views, Princeton seems up there. He, he did things that set the bar. Remember the sponsorship with Adidas? Big deal. The flying carpet? Big deal. The highlight reel knockouts? The big deal. The trash talking? The flip over? Naz moved boxing. David Hay moved boxing. And what I mean by move boxing is they showed that there was a new level you could achieve. You know, I might be wrong on this, but David Hay was being sponsored by Bentley, Jaguar. Uh, which watch company was it? Hugo Boss, he modeled for Dolce and Gabbana. David Hay did all of these things that boxers don't traditionally do. The Haymaker t-shirts. In terms of boxing, iconic. Being your own man, driving your own direction. The events he had, uh, Manchester 10 years ago, all these things. David moved boxing. And so when you see Joshua, it's an extension of what David created. And when you see David, it's an extension of what Naz created. That's what makes them great. You can debate their records and you can debate what they achieved in the ring. And I'm happy to have that discussion. They are great because they moved the sport. The sport you watch today is their creation. You know, do they sit on top of Ben Eubank? Absolutely. They're greats too. But that's the lineage. It's not your Billy Joes. It's not your Tyson Furies. It's not those guys. Because they live off this. They haven't moved the sport in another direction. So, Naz is great for that. Now, did he get found out the one time he fought someone that we class as a true great in Marco Antonio Barrera? Yes. Would it have been different had they fought two years earlier? No. I think Barrera was special. I think Barrera came from such a tough school. He wasn't going to be scared of anything. And you could have swapped Barrera out, put Morales in, swap Morales out, put Pacquiao in. Swap Pacquiao out, put Marquez in. I think Naz would have been in trouble against those guys. I think you'd have beaten a guy like a David Diaz, absolutely. But that was, you saw Naz's ceiling. I also feel that in the Barrera fight, Emmanuel Stewart took some of that unpredictability that Brendan Ingle allowed him to have. And that also slowed him down. But Naz is the boxing great. There's no debate about that. Not the greatest record in history, but he moved the sport. The other name to touch on is Joe Calzaghe. I think Calzaghe is massively overrated. Took no risks in his prime years. And, you know, quite, quite intelligently... Realized that he could catch some guys on the way down. Hopkins on the way down. Jones Jr. on the way down. Right? And he still beat them. Controversially, maybe, but he beat them. And we tarnished that. But Bernard Hopkins went on to beat some good people. So, it's a good win for Calzaghe, but it's not a win that makes you great. It's not, you can't hang your Hall of Fame career on that. You can't hang your Hall of Fame career on Eubank coming in at last minute. Bernard Hopkins being 50, 
and Roy Jones Jr. being 85. You, you can't do that. It's not fair. And then we hear that you retired undefeated yeah, because your whole aim was to never lose. Now, I think Calzaghe would have had a hell of a career, whoever he had fought. If he had fought everyone he could have fought, he'd still have a hell of a career. He'd lose a couple of times, but he'd be a lock-in for the Hall of Fame. But now he isn't. He's behind Frotch in that queue. Because there's a man who was underrated. Look at his record. He wasn't supposed to do all of this stuff. Frotch was never meant to be an international-level boxer, but he just sheer force of will. Same thing as a pro. Yes, he was outclassed against Ward, and he was absolutely humble, and he got battered round after round by Groves. But against Groves, he found a way to win. And he retired the right way with all of his money and all of his faculties intact. So, Frotch, massively underrated. But he'll always be defined by that fight against Ward. Because we know Ward's an all-time great. And against an all-time great, Carl Frotch was three or four steps behind. And I say this because when you, when you talk, you know, we've all watched boxing through the years. And all the times we got told these guys like Tim Bradley were greats and Devin Alexander were greats. And it turned out that they were terrible. Robert Guerrero wasn't really that good. You know, these guys were average. Like the American fighters, when they come up, they're massively overrated. Very few of those guys are the real deal. But we never have a balanced view because we're quick to give our own a kicking. And just to come back to the Calzaghe point. I hope Callum Smith takes the Carl Frotch approach to career management and not the Calzaghe approach. Because I don't mind boxers losing two or three fights. I rate Glenn Johnson above both Calzaghe and Frotch. For no other reason, I look at who he faced. I rate Clinton Woods above Joe Calzaghe and above Carl Frotch. Because I look at who he faced. Clinton Woods wasn't a de decorated amateur. He wasn't a superstar on the way up. I'll tell you what he was. One of the toughest men this country's ever produced. If you've never watched a Clinton Woods fight, please, after this podcast, just watch one. Watch him against Tarver. Watch him against Johnson. Watch him against Roy Jones Jr. <laughs> just think about the names I just said there. I think he even fought Tavares Cloud. Think of the names I have just said there. A Brit did that. And he didn't get an MBE. Didn't get a knighthood. Clinton Woods did that. He did that when he was Joshua's age. Remember this. He did that when he was Joshua's age. Won some, lost some. But he's probably better loved in America than he is here. And that's the sad state of affairs of our boxing. But after you listen to this, please, you know the announcement goes out. My question for everyone listening Give me two overrated boxers. Give me two underrated boxers. That's a challenge for everyone. I'm going to sign out now because I need to go and ring my mom and make sure she's okay. Have a great time, guys. Remember, stay safe, stay home, and let's get through this crisis together. Cold summer, we're the cold summer. Like that summer they killed Chris and took his soul from him. Niggas move funny when you need him till the wolves run up. In 2020, trying to beat us like we stole from him. Damn. Oh, summer, we're the cold summer. The whole spring got canceled, we might have no summer. They said New York is ground zero, and everybody look like Sub Zero with their mouths and their nose covered. Uh.
Now you bugging when your nose running But you can't get tested even if you feel a cold coming Cause it might could be the fever or the flu or neither of the two But how we supposed to know when we don't know nothing Medical supplies running low so they don't got a test for all of us And we was living foul, maybe God is testing all of us Went from club hopping in Corona Queens, sipping on Coronas To going from Corona to the coroner Who would think that we would live our future with a mask on? We was used to listening to future, nigga, mask on mask off, God blessing all the trap niggas, now the trap niggas ain't no different than them rap niggas, now them big actors and them Instagram actors are the same, cause we all being contained, that's a fact nigga, they say stay home cause we sick, it's a morgue, it's six feet away or six deep, cause they gon' think you sick when you cough, and Times Square look like I am legend, mine is Will Smith and the dog, dog, it's getting dark, crappy hard for walk, just seen the National Guard, I smell martial law. And Trump the door, we're gonna do it, but what that mean to him? I say he's trying to get us sick to set the vaccine to us. Stay woke. If it's a virus, we can fight it with ease. There's ozone and high dose vitamin C. We don't drink enough water. That was poisoning our health, so we don't flush the colon. We've been poisoning ourselves. And I heard jail got the COVID, now it's poisoning the cells. And every 5G tower's putting poison in our cells. God, please forgive me. I was trapping on the iPhone. Hope this ain't payback for selling poison through a cell. Hope this ain't payback for the way we took the earth for granted and you got us on house arrest because of how we hurt the planet. Please, please, forgive us as a whole. Don't let this be the new normal. Don't make us give up what we know. Stop the death penalty and senses us to quarantine. Lord, we probably never stop grieving if you don't. One more thing before I go. I know that you will never hate us, but if you behind us, you just taught us to do better later. I swear if you behind us, you just taught us to do better later. Promise to go hard, just get my dog up off that ventilator. Moses, marry God, please get my dog up off that ventilator. Pray hard for my nigga Fred to God. Fred's wife begs not to count him out just yet. Don't just assume they're gonna die. He's winning. He's winning.